Hello and welcome to Close Reads on the Searcy Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. And as always on Close Reads, I am joined by Angie Tim, Angelina Stanford, <laughs> and Tim McIntosh. I'm just Angie excited Tim that I still get top billing with Angie Tim, so I'm good. <laughs> it's hard to do Tim Timanja. Tingelina? Tingelina just doesn't Tingelina. roll off the tongue. <laughs> Tim Jelina. <laughs> Ooh, that's an interesting one. I don't know. That might that one might I might have to do that one time. Well, anyway, we are here to talk about books. We are here to talk in this particular episode about Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Watch, chapters three and four. Uh, but first, before we do that, I figure being friends and trying to be polite and all, I should inquire as to your uh, current well-being. So <laughs> consider the question asked. Wow, that was How the most much? natural lead-in I've yeah. ever heard. <laughs> How deeply meaningful, David. <laughs> I am doing so well. And How also are you with doing? you. And also with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, since you asked. <laughs> just kidding. So, no, really, though, how's it, how's it going? What's, what, let me just put it this way. What's new in the world of uh, Tim McIntosh? I am racing, racing, racing toward the end of another year at Gutenberg College. We've got about a week and a half left. And you guys know, ending the school year is like a sprint. Oh, yes. Having said that, having said that, I have prematurely awarded myself (laughs) by buying a ticket with frequent flyer miles. Are you ready? I feel like I need a drum roll. I'm so ready. Please tell me you're going to Brideshead. I wish I was, well, no, I'm glad I'm going where I'm going. I bought a ticket to Aruba. What? <laughs> so Aruba. I'm I had so friends. imagining fancy drinks with umbrellas right now. Oh, totally. Absolutely. If I a have drink, never. Hold on, hold on, hold on. We've got to set some re- records straight here. <laughs> if a drink has an umbrella, it's not that fancy. Okay. Island, you know, exotic islander kind of thing. I'm not. He's not okay, in Manhattan right. with an, you know, an, a thing in there. Come on. <laughs> all right. Still Better not than on the rocks right. with a fancy umbrella. <laughs> with an umbrella. <laughs> okay, Tim. So you have a friend down there? No, no, no. I, I have two friends who went this winter. Beth and Walter, and Beth and Walter were just talking up Aruba, and I was like, it's got to be just ridiculously expensive, and they just were laying it out for me. No. It's remarkably affordable. I had frequent flyer miles. I thought I've never gone on a tropical vacation, unless you count Florida when you're 11 years old. I've never gone on a tropical vacation. You do not. You do not count that. You don't count that. Okay. We can't can't diss Florida. Cersei's got friends in Florida. Love to Florida. But but it probably does not qualify as a tropical vacation. It's a it's a beach vacation, not a tropical vacation. But Aruba is a completely different story. I just love the way you say Aruba. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you're just feeling it already. Oh, you're I am feeling it. You're turning into a totally already. different Tim McIntosh right now, one who says Aruba. Hey, well, here, up. Go ahead, David. Well, I just wanted to say I I got a message from Graham. Oh no. Oh, what did Graham say? Yeah. So Graham's on an adventure right now. He just sent me a message. Um, 
that he is currently strapped into this NASA shuttle, which he's been planning on going on. Oh. Headed into orbit. Oh, my goodness, the, yeah. The problem is that there's communication with Houston is impossible due to an overpowering cackle coming from North Carolina. <laughs> so he... He's a little. I've got. I feel for him because he's a little afraid. He's probably gonna die in the void now. Oh my you know, goodness! I could, I could have told Graham I have my own orbit and solar system. I mean, you know, he should have checked with me first. We could have coordinated something. Well, <laughs> I don't. But Tim, are you gonna tell is, us what your beach read is for Aruba? That's what I want to know. Okay, I have. <laughs> you guys are gonna laugh. I have right, basically. It's not going to be Bride's Head Revisited. I have two broad categories, okay? Seriously, you're going to laugh. One, should we start with the kind of like the light and fun reading that everyone is going to be in favor of, or should we tar- start with the kind of semi-dark one? Oh, let's, let's leave with the light. I have never read the Harry Potter series. I have never read a <gasps> are such a treat. Oh. Well, I'm thinking about, in fact, your cousin David recommended this. Alex is like, just read them all when you're down there. And I, that's really, really tempting. The other choice, seriously, is uh, Dostoevsky's Demons, which is a huge bookstop of a novel, a doorstop of a novel. I've never read it before. I love Dostoevsky. Uh, I'm kind of going back and forth. I don't know what I should do. Maybe we, maybe it should be a close reads poll. What should Tim's Aruba vacation reading be? I just feel like leaving the country with a book called Demons is asking for trouble. That's, that's a that's great my, point. That's my tourist opinion there. <laughs> I, might, I might raise some eyebrows among TSA employees. Well, you know. Sir, could you step TSA, over here? This Native button? Islanders. Yeah. You know, got to think about that American reputation as you travel that's a great abroad, point. Tim. That's a great point. Bringing seven large books might be a little bit of a problem. Too. Okay, but what about it's an opportunity to buy a Kindle? I've never bought I was a Kindle. I say, just put it on a Kindle. Right? Sure. These are the sure. difficult questions facing me. Well, I'm very pro-Kindle when it comes to travel because I'm, I always am bringing too many books. I got busted the last time in the airport coming back from a Cersei conference. I was over the weight limit because of all the books I oh bought. My, oh, my. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm confident that our listeners will be able to solve this problem for you, Tim. I hope so. But, but here's the question. Here's the yeah. question. Are you are you really going to follow whatever they vote? Ooh. Ooh. Tim Jelena does what Tim Jelena wants. <laughs> Maybe we could take it as like Wait, vote that's, on that's giving really Tim advice. We could vote on some advice for Tim. Okay. So is it, you're not like willing to give up your entire, you know. I, I don't your, know that I am. It's probably smart. Just don't put a none of the above option because no telling what you're going to get suggested. True. <laughs> True. Well, speaking of Tim's reading habits, we need to say a quick word from a sponsor. <laughs> because Well transitioned. Because Close Reads this month is brought to you by the Scola Academy. Do you, do any of you, well, I don't know. I, I don't think you do. Well, maybe you do. Do you have a ninth through 12th grade student that would benefit from an engaging seminar style grade books course while learning two high school credits? I don't know. And I don't, I'm, I'm pretty confident Tim doesn't. I know I don't. But you know what? I'm guessing there's at least one listener out there who probably does. Who is well, probably second guessing that decision right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
here's the thing. If you fit into that category of human being, Closer Reads contributor Professor Tim McIntosh is offering four different high school great books courses live online at Scully Academy. So if you would like your high school students to have deep engagement with the great books and develop a love for the classics under the tutelage of said Professor Tim McIntosh, you can visit scullyacademy.com to learn more. Tim? Yes, sir. Would you like to summarize quickly for us, uh, for those who may not remember, what it is that you're actually teaching for the Scully Academy? Like, what are those classes going to be covering? Four classes. They are literature slash history classes. And I'll say more about that in a second. The four classes are ancient Greek and Roman literature, medieval and Renaissance literature, British and American literature, and world literature. And so they're kind of a mix between we will read a classic, let's say the trial of Socrates, we'll read the trial of Socrates, and we won't just talk about um, the text that we're reading, Plato's dialogue about the trial of Socrates, but we'll also kind of figure out what was going on in the world of Socrates and Plato, what was their social life like, what was family life like, what was political life like. Um, it will be seminar, There'll be seminar-style classes, meaning they will be, we'll be discussing just like we do in close reads. Um, I'm going to lecture as little as possible. And it, I, I think the classes are going to be really wonderful. I'm actually really, really looking forward to them. So again, if people want to learn more about these classes that Tim is leading... Uh, for 9th through 12th graders, you can head over to scholeacademy.com. Uh, Scholey is S-C-H-O-L-E academy.com. And these are presented by our good friends over at Classical Academic Press. Scholey Academy is their, uh, their online school outfit. I don't know what the word is. Um, but that, you know, that's through them, and we're really thankful that they are partnering with us to make this show possible, and um, that Tim's got that gig. That's pretty sweet. So, um, you know. Everybody David, check that I, out. If you have students in that range range, ch check out, check those classes out. Could I say one more thing, David? <laughs> Scole is um, kind of shorthand for restful teaching. One of the reasons that I really am looking forward to teaching with them is um, they put a great emphasis on not bombarding students with massive amounts of reading, massive amounts of mm -hmm. homework. Mm -hmm. They kind of want students and the teacher to really connect in a um, maybe leisurely is the right way of describing it in kind of a leisurely manner of like really sitting down and soaking with the material because they think, and I completely agree with them, just bombarding students with the heavy weight of high, ex you know, exceptionally high expectations for output is kind of just a really modern contemporary vision of education that they are trying to steer away from and back toward a more restful, um, connected, organic vision of education. Hmm. Well, that explains this teacher training trip to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> I love your philosophy. Self, it might be like a self-preservation trip. Um, well, we are here, of course, not so much to talk about Tim's vacations, but to talk about um, Brideshead Revisited, although if Tim's vacations continue to come up, by all means, by all means. talk about them. So um, we're here to talk about chapters three and four of Brideshead Revisited. And 
uh, one thing that's interesting about these chapters is that um, whereas the first few chapters take place largely with Charles and Sebastian at Oxford, these two chapters get them kind of out of off campus, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, on, on little like trips home. Um, and we get two very different homes being presented with two very different sets of families. Um, so in chapter three, Charles Ryder, our, our uh, protagonist, if you will, heads home to visit his father. And it goes um, interestingly. Um, it doesn't go so well. And then in chapter four, he heads off to, well, I guess towards the end of chapter three, uh, he heads off to be with Sebastian. And he spends a month there with Sebastian, who beckons him by suggesting that he was on his deathbed, which, of course, he just broke a tiny bone in his foot. Um, but he gets Sebastian out to his out to Brideshead, where they spend a month together, and then they go off to Venice to visit uh, Sebastian's father, who is, um, lives there with his mistress. And so we get these two very different um, setups, these two very different places. And I wanted to think a little bit about, as we begin the conversation, the way that those two families and those two places and those visits, and in particular, the two fathers are different and how they're similar. Because I think it sets up a lot about the relationship between Charles and Sebastian. Um, there's a, these chapters are very, very rich. There's a lot of great um, bits of prose that I think are worth just celebrating and, and contemplating. And then there's a lot of stuff on the nature of faith and Catholicism and the church in general and all that. But I want to start with this sort of more general uh Talk, topic of conversation in comparing those two families. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in what ways do you see um, Charles's father and Sebastian's father as being similar? Oh well, they're two classic distant fathers, right? Mm-hmm. One literally, one emotionally. Go on. Oh well, I mean, um, Charles's father just it retreats into himself through grief, I suppose, and then perhaps some other traumatic mental and emotional issues going on there as well but he's he's living in some sort of past and which he has retreated into to cope right and uh he mm-hmm. does not like charles intruding on that at all so he's an emotionally distant father who keeps trying to mm-hmm. be literally distant and not so <laughs> not so subtle terms we could go to australia yeah. cousin went to australia um and, and then and then sebastian's father being you know literally distant living in another country but not emotionally distant yeah, I'm not I was just going to ask you, did you think that he was emotionally distant, Sebastian's father, Angelina? Not in, not in the same way. I didn't think it, but then when, when the, the woman talks about it, she talks about it like he's got some bent up, you know, sort of hidden animosity towards Sebastian because Sebastian is his mother's son. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly she makes it very clear that he hates, it was her word, he hates uh, Lady... Marchmain, is that that the name? Um, right. Mm-hmm. Sebastian's mm-hmm. mother and his ex, his ex-wife. Um, I have some problems with that passage. It's one of the few passages in the book that I, I think, is a little bit, I don't know, that I don't think is great. Um, doesn't really belong there. Um, <clears throat> but we can talk about that when we get there. But do you do, do you see them as being? Do you don't see Angelina uh, Sebastian's father as being, like actively emotionally distant in the same way that um, Charles's father is? Is that what you're saying? Not, not in the same way, no. I mean, Charles's father is almost waging war with him. 
I know. And Charles, of yeah. course, that's the language that's used, right? Like he yes, uses it's a the battlefield. Before, uh, dinner, the dinner yeah. table is a battlefield, and he is trying to run him out, and he is getting some kind of glee and enjoyment out of it. What? Why do you think that is? I was just going to ask anything? the same question. I kept asking myself that while it was happening, and there was a couple of times where Charles said, "This is the only place he's comfortable." Right. This is what he's good at. That that kind of like uh, that like psychological warfare. That's what yeah. he's good at. You mean and, and fighting. Mm. He's like he's just naturally combative and that's right, he's, right. He's gifted. But I I don't know. I read that chapter twice because it it bothered me trying to understand mm. what's going on because I I don't think that he hates Charles. If there's something else going on that I couldn't quite put my finger on it because there was there was almost a playfulness, but not like when he's looking back and forth between Charles and his friend, the first dinner guest, and uh-huh. it says he looks at the friend with kindness, and then he looked at Charles with malice, and then he went back to kindness. Like, what is that all about? I don't even know. I don't. I and, honestly and just, don't know what to make of it. We're just dropped into the story, and we experience it from Charles' position, but we don't get much of a backstory other than... He's a widower. He was in the war. But I, yeah, I, I had a hard time explaining to myself why the animosity. Well, good. I'm glad I'm not the only one because, yeah, I, I don't know what to make of it. I, it didn't feel to me like he actually hated Charles. Maybe he just doesn't know what to do with Charles. Maybe he just has retreated into this secret world and doesn't want anyone intruding on it, like his sister well, or anyone. Uh, Mitch? Midway through chapter three, or not maybe not midway through, but towards towards the middle, uh, you get this you get the scene where he invites all those people over. Oh, yes, it's yes. A he, terrible, he awkward evening. He ups the ante on that war. I mean, the yeah. Oh, oh, you're gonna bring a dinner guest over here? You think you're gonna make me uncomfortable? I'm about to show mm-hmm. you a dinner party. Right, and and of course, at the, he, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he says. He's, uh, Charles says, you know, my father's counterattack. That's what he refers to it as. But it says that after that. On my book, it's page 72. I don't know. It's right before Sebastian's letter arrives. Um, but it says strife was interne- yeah. I- internecine. 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 In, in between yeah. the wars, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, during the next fortnight. But I suffered the more, for my father had greater reserve to draw on and a wider territory for maneuver. While I was pinned to my, br- my bridge head between the uplands and the sea. Uh, the, the way he uses it and, and continues to extend and expand yes. on that metaphor yes. is so yeah. good. Um he never declared his war aims, and I do not to this day know whether they were purely punitive, whether he had really at the back of his mind some geopolitical idea of getting me out of the country, <laughs> as Aunt Philippa had driven to Bordeguera and my cousin Melchior to Darwin, or whether, as mo- seems most likely, he fought for the sheer love of a battle in which indeed mm. he shone. So even Charles himself doesn't know exactly yeah. what's going on. Um, that it's, it's almost easier, I, I suspect, like with... With the conflict in Sebastian's home, it seems like Charles looks at that and, and like can make more sense of it rather than the conflict within his own home. Like if his father had just run away with a woman and there was conflict because of that, it probably would have been easier for him to understand what was going yes, on. And wasn't, like, there, he understands, wasn't there something in chapter four where Charles basically uh, he like sort of responds? What am I remembering? He responds in a way to Lord Marchmain and says something like, "I, you know, that he had never had any kind of fatherly affection, and he didn't know what to make of it, really." I don't remember that particular line. It's, it's something um, like that. I'm sure I marked it, but um. 
but that seems to be clear. I mean, that seems that he he doesn't know, and it, it seems like he, in general, in his life, is lacking for male affection. And you you get that, you know the. This was um, it. Sorry. Okay, go ahead. Go I ahead. found it's ninety seven in my book. Sebastian kisses his father goodnight. Darling papa said Sebastian, how young you are looking. Or, or greets him with a kiss. He kissed Lord Marchmain on the cheek, and I, who had not kissed my father since I left the nursery, stood shyly behind him. Mm. Which I guess I took well, that and, to mean a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the um, well, no, I think you should. I mean, I think that that's certainly the subtext of why Charles is experiencing things the way he is, and why he's responding to the way he is. And even when and you get in, um, what was Lord Marchmain's? What's the mistress's name? Cara. Um, Cora. Cara. Cara. Um, she uh, she even comes to him and says, you know, she's commenting on the on his relationship with Sebastian. Yes. And, you know, she's recognizing an intimacy there. And um, it, you get the sense that Charles has, has never had a sort of male, like really good male relationships. Right. And so he, he jumps into these things. Like anytime there's male affection or really we'll find out affection of any kind, like he is, he jumps into it very easily. Like he mm-hmm. responds to it and um, is desperate for it in a sense, it seems. And when he goes and he sees that in the Marchmain clan, despite all their, despite all the chaos and despite all of the, uh, the drama, he still sees people who, if not, you know, obviously maybe not the mother and the father, but the rest of them have this degree of, of affection towards one another, which seems to be really, um, addicting to him. Really, really, um, something, something very desirable. Yeah. You know, the first time I read this, I wasn't much older than 19 myself, but now as the mother of a 20 year old all of this just it just reads so different and every time that uh evelyn wall makes a point and which he does many times he makes a point of saying and charles was only 19 or and sebastian was only 19 and that has hit Mm -hmm. me so hard on this read like they're just kids (laughs) you know oh yeah they're just kids and charles is just an unloved kid and sebastian's just an unloved kid and they're just oh they're just struggling with this they're just kids yeah and it, it, you know, it's easy for us, I think, as readers, to to look at characters in books, as I don't, I don't know what the word is, but to to not see them as people, yes. you know, like they seem like abstractions, and so therefore they seem like they don't experience things the way we do. But the greatest characters obviously experience things within a certain context, right? Mm-hmm. And that context is age and all that kind of stuff. And so, like, it's like Huckleberry Finn. I feel like a lot of times when we write about Huckleberry Finn. There's these uh, we apply these abstractions to him, and we don't think about uh, the, you know there you got another unloved kid who's making these decisions within a specific context, and we kind of judge them differently than we might real people who we look we might look at with with a sense of sympathy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy to judge a character for some kind of action without thinking you know this is a this is a person, you know whether there's lots of debate about how to what degree you should look at a fictional character as a person, but within the context of the story, at minimum they operate the way humans operate. And at least if it's a good book. Right. Yes. And two 19-year-old boys really don't have much of a clue about anything. <laughs> yeah, I know. Especially ones that had the kind of upbringing they yes. had. You know, what I, you know what I wonder, you guys? I wonder if part of the reason we don't get much of an explanation about Charles's dad is because he's he's a war figure. He's one of the many, many, many men who have come home that's true. From World War One, hmm. and 
it doesn't i mean you guys probably you know veterans war mm-hmm. is so brutal on the psyche it's just so mm-hmm. brutal on the psyche and i wonder if the reason that Waugh doesn't really give much of an explanation about his father's kind of distance is that it's it was i wonder if in england during the t- at the time it was such a common he, that distant father that post world war 1 father was such a common um person such a common character that the first readers of this book would have read Edward Ryder Charles's father and said oh I know that guy that's my dad that's my neighbor's dad home from the war and so it's more like I don't know if that makes any sense or not no, it does. if written after World War two or late during World War two I just think so many men having coming home, having come home from war, we would maybe call it like they've suffered some level of PTSD. We would call it that today, but there was no name for well, it back then. Well, they called it shell shock back there, and, I, and I'm glad that you mentioned this, actually, because I don't know why I didn't think of this sooner. You know, after we read um, the Dorothy Sayers book, which she obviously deals a lot with um, PTSD with Lord Peter coming after World War One, I, I did some research on that, and uh, it, it turns out that... Sorry. It turns out that, uh, <laughs> you know, my people call. Um, Is it Lord Peter he calling? totally heard his name, and he's like, oh, someone wants to chat. Um, always. <laughs> Petey, babe, got to wait. Um, Bunter put some tea on. But anyway, uh, <laughs> totally losing my train of thought here. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. So it, it turns out that this shell shock issue for men returning from World War One actually was in the in the public conversation about war at that time. Was it yes, war? this is really interesting because what I discovered is a lot of people were writing about this. And so these guys were coming back. It was just oh, it was, World War I was just so like it's so hard to wrap your head around how awful it was. It was just so awful. Mm. And they, so you had men walking the streets who were maimed, you know, faces scarred up, half limbs gone. Um, and it just was this constant reminder of the blight of this war and, and the, you know, how difficult it was to, to move on. And then you had all these people with emotional and psychological issues, which they called shell shock. Um, so you had a lot of homelessness and unemployment and people just really not being able to cope with what they had been through. Uh, and so that, that yeah. there was, um, you know, psychological attention being given to that. What happened was, though, we immediately go into World War II and the narrative changes, right? And so <laughs> shell shock did not get the attention it did with World War I because the narrative was these guys are returning heroes who saved the world from Hitler. Um, uh, so, so shell shock doesn't get attention again, really, until almost almost recent times. I mean, it didn't entirely go away, but it wasn't the prevailing narrative, right? Uh, we we have to honor all these guys as heroes. We can't act like they're all bearing the burden still of this war. Damn it! Right, right, right. But I think that you're absolutely right that he would have been a, a World War One veteran, and and um, you know, possibly this was a, a common experience that that there were, you know people with uh, emotional and psychological damage that I guess we couldn't even really unravel. He, he doesn't seem yeah. to be doing anything about it except retreating. Right. In, in right. Looks. Retreat, retreat, retreat. Mm-hmm. Isn't there a line somewhere in these chapters where Sebastian tells Charles, isn't it a shame that we'll never be able to do anything yes. as important yes. as fighting a war yes. or something to that I effect? I just saw that line. And that that's striking, given the given the sort of conflict that 
is sort of, uh, you know, under the surface throughout these chapters. Well, actually, it's not really under the surface between Charles and his father. Well, not just that, <clears> but <throat> the framing device of this is that Charles is in Brideshead in World War Two. Right. Um, right. But right. yes. Well, that that just points to the disillusionment that everybody was experiencing after World War One. I. I mean, even feeling like we'll never even have a great yeah. war to fight. Right, and that's um, well, okay. Go ahead, Tim. Go I was going to say it's just another similarity with the book that David, your dad, and I discussed in an earlier podcast, um, Hemingway's book, "The Sun Also Rises." That that post World War One malaise among, especially among young people, um, they were who either fought in the war or kind of couldn't fight in the war and just just got lost, just absolutely lost. It's another commonality with this book, with Brideshead Revisited. Well, and it seems like, you know, one thing that comes up in this chapter is the idea of happiness. Um, when, let's see, for me it's on page 89. Um, there, Sebastian, it's in chapter 4, and Sebastian and Charles are talking about um, their family's relationship to faith, I guess. And he's talking about his parents. And he says, um, it's while they're watching, you know, they're, they've got, they're watching the fair and they, they're watching through the mm-hmm. yeah. binoculars or something. They're, and so you Cordelia. see a mixed family? Is that the one? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So he says, so actually, Tim, go ahead and read that. So you see we were a mixed family religiously. Uh, who's talking Sebastian. here, David? That's Seb- Sebastian. So you see we're a mixed family religiously. Brideshead and Cordelia are both fervent Catholics. He's miserable. She's bird happy. Julia and I are half heathen. I am happy. I rather think Julia isn't. Mummy is popularly believed to be a saint, and Papa is excommunicated. And I wouldn't know which of them was happy. Anyway, however you look at it, happiness doesn't seem to have much to do with it, and that's all I want. I wish I liked Catholics more. So, you know, we talked last week about these juxtapositions. And it seems like we're getting a, oh, he's dropping a whole bunch of juxtapositions here, right? He's dropping, you know, the similarities and differences, right? The similarities between he and Julia, but the differences, one's happy and one's not. The similarities, the differences between his parents, the differences between Brideshead and Cordelia The difference between so Brideshead's but then, education and Sebastian's education, right? Brideshead goes to a Catholic mm-hmm. school and Sebastian went to Eton. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and then one of the key juxtapositions here, at least in Sebastian's mind, is Catholicism and happiness, right? The practice of the faith and happiness. Yeah. Happiness doesn't seem to have much to do with it, with, with faith, that's, that is, and that's all I want. I wish I liked Catholics more. Um, so that seems to be a crucial thing going on within this internal battle within, within Sebastian, and then even, you know, within Charles a little bit. Like, Sebastian is honest, at least, about it. He's, he's honest about saying, you know, he says... I'm the kind of person who prays, make me good, but not yet. Right. Right. Yeah. He's very honest. And that's the thing. Like he's honest that he is searching for happiness, that what he wants above all is happiness. And that speaks to that same, you know, how many people of his generation were feeling the same way, but even in his, their father's generations. Right. And, and Charles's father is seeking happiness and peace in in his own way and 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 uh sebastian's does the same in his in his own way and they're very different ways and ultimately it seems like neither of them are quite as happy as they they hope to be 
and then you and then you have Sebastian and Charles and Julia and Cordelia and all them looking at that and saying, "Well, <laughs> great." <laughs> uh-huh. Wait, what do you guys make of? Um... This is just what we were talking about, but I kind of want to go a little bit deeper into it. What do you make of how Sebastian views Catholics? So the next paragraph after mm-hmm. the paragraph I just read. Um, it's kind of it kind of lays out his view of where he stands in relation to Catholicism and how he views Catholicism. I I just wonder what Wa is doing there. So would you guys mind if I read that next paragraph? Go for it. Um, so Sebastian concludes. I wish I liked Catholics more. Charles, they seem just like other people. Sebastian, my dear Charles, that's exactly what they're not, particularly in this country where there are so few. It's not just that they're a clique. As a matter of fact, there are at least four cliques, all blackguarding each other half the time. But they've got an entirely different outlook on life. Everything they think important is different from other people. They try and hide it as much as they can, but it comes out all the time. It's quite natural, really, that they should. But you see, it's different for semi-heathens like Julia and me. I love that at that moment when he's referring to himself as a semi-heathen was when Cordelia comes up and they have to, and he's like, "We have to cover up." Hold on. Right. <laughs> oh, no, I didn't no, notice no. that. I didn't no, notice that. that. Was so great. Great. This whole chapter was so um, great. Like they're in the heathen baths or something no, exactly. like that. Yeah, yeah it, it does. It feels sort of like the the, the pagan, like some Greek. Greek. Yes public bath I totally missed that um everything they think is different mm-hmm. from other people now that's that's a really interesting line but okay so the four it might be this might be a good point to talk a little bit about like Catholicism in England yeah, at the especially time since he mm. brings up that there so, are there are so, so few of them the the yeah so few in the four groups and all that who wants? Yeah, what do you guys um, want to I touch was on that? That we'd be able to to get to that. You know, um, we're on the other side of it, right? And we're we're in a at least nominally pluralistic society where it's really it doesn't have huge social implications what your religious denomination is, right? You know, it's not it's not earth shattering if somebody becomes a Roman Catholic in this in this day and age. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, one of the things I always tell my students is that it's not like Henry VIII just woke up one day and then Catholicism was gone in England and the question was settled, right? It wasn't settled in England for a very very long time, and. Um, uh, really, up until the Glorious Revolution in 1688, it was not a settled matter about whether or not England was going to be Roman Catholic or or if it was going to be Anglican. Um, and because of that, of course, you had all these various persecutions that were happening on both sides, right? Protestant persecution and Catholic persecution. Um, but after 1688, the question was, was settled, and yet um, Catholic persecution continued. Um, so there's no more burning of the stakes at this point, but the Catholic Church dwindles to almost nothing. Their numbers were at their lowest ever in England at that point, and uh, to be a Roman Catholic in England meant that you had seriously limited civil rights, okay? So, like, you couldn't own property, right. you couldn't inherit land, they had to pay special taxes, they couldn't send their children abroad for a Catholic education. Obviously, there's no Catholic schools in, in um, England at that time. Um, they couldn't vote, 
In fact, I remember one of my, uh, my, my neoclassical poetry professor telling us that Alexander Pope, who was a Catholic, was not even allowed to live in the city limits of London because he was a Roman Catholic. No yeah. way. So, um, so you know, to, to be a Roman Catholic was to be less than a full citizen of England. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, obviously numbers, numbers dwindled there. A lot of Catholics went into exile, just moved to other countries. Uh, many of them outwardly conformed to Anglicanism, you know, just to get the, the property rights. And um, Catholics didn't have very li- I mean, there was very little public visibility if you were a Catholic and certainly no influence. And this continues well into the 19th century, okay? And so in... In 1778, right, you get the Catholic Relief Act, where, where so Parliament passes this to allow Catholics can now own property. <laughs> Catholics can inherit land. Catholics can join the army, okay? The response to this was mobs in the streets, <laughs> violence, riots. Wow. Like, how can you give Catholics wow. the right to vote? I mean, this is, you know, this is how intense it was. Um, and then in 1791... Stonyhurst College, which is where Brideshead went to school, uh, was reestablished. It had been a Catholic school. Of course, Henry VIII had, you know, taken all of the Roman Catholic properties uh, and all of that and had turned them into other things. So in 1791, Stonehurst College is reestablished as a, as a place where wealthier Catholics could send their children. Um, this was also mentioned in Brideshead. So the reason why the priests would go to people's houses to say Mass, so they talk about um, amongst themselves, how the priest goes to their house, right? That's because there weren't there weren't Catholic churches. Yeah. So, if you were a Roman Catholic, you were you were just having mass in somebody's house, right? Um, uh, so, I mean, at, at the point of, of the book, there are now a large enough numbers uh, for them to think about establishing a church somewhere else and no longer meeting in the home. But that's why that tradition would have been uh, longstanding. In 1829, that's not that long ago, Catholics finally get the right to vote. No. Okay, they get the right to Right, it Incredible. is. Um, in the 1830s and 1840s, you have the Oxford Movement. Okay, so that, of course, places us back in the context of this book again. Um, and that was a revival of Catholic theology led by John Henry Newman. So he was wanting to find all, like, the high Anglican parts of the Church of England and try to, you know, reinvigorate Catholic theology and make some connections. And so over the next hundred years... Uh, there were a great many Anglican converts to Roman Catholicism. So the numbers start to go up again. Um, And it's not until 1850 that the Catholic hierarchy is allowed to be reestablished in England. Right? That's not that long ago. That is so recent. I know. It's so so recent. Only in 1850 were they allowed to start having bishops again and dioceses and all that. But, seriously limited, um, they could not... The Catholic diocese could not overlap an Anglican diocese. You know, there's all these rules. It couldn't have the same name, even though the Roman Catholics argued, but it was our name first, and you took it, and we just want to take it back. In fact, in 2007, this same argument came up in Parliament in England about why can't the Roman Catholic Church call its diocese what it was originally called? Why does it have to use these other names and let the Anglican Church have those original names? So this is... Still going you, on. Wow, it's still, <laughs> still going, going on. on. Could could I talk very briefly about yeah. the Oxford movement? Yeah. Just because John John Henry Newman, who's kind of like I don't know the father of the of the Oxford movement, uh, he was born at the very beginning of the nineteenth century. He's one of my 
heroes. So even if you don't know John Henry Newman and you've ever been on a college campus, you've probably driven past a John Henry Newman Center, which is usually kind of like, it's like the student yeah, yeah. center for Catholic students that are on too. campus. He, there's one right down the street from Gutenberg. John Henry Newman, I, I one of my all-time like theological books is a book by John Henry Newman. It's a collection of sermons that he preached at Oxford. Gosh, um, middle part of the 19th century. And it's called 10 Sermons Delivered at Oxford University. And it's all about the relationship between faith and reason. And for me, reading that book, the way that he discussed the relationship between faith and reason, are they enemies of each other? Are they friends of each other? Are they the same thing? It's magisterial. It's absolutely wonderful. He wrote them while he was still an Anglican. He converts to Catholicism, which this is in a overstated a little bit, but it's the equivalent of Billy Graham converting to Catholicism for Americans. Like this is a major, major figure in Anglicanism changing to what so many people still believed was the dark side. Um, but at the end of his life, John Henry Newman said that this collection of sermons was the best thing that he ever read. And he is like widely decorated as one of the great prose masters of the 19th century. So to look back and say, this was maybe my greatest work is really a testament to how highly he believed in this book. I'm just, you guys totally <laughs> plugging for a collection of sermons. It just changed my life reading those sermons. Awesome. I love them. <laughs> And he's at the forefront. I mean, he's like John Henry Newman and the Oxford movement. They are helping kind of make Catholicism an acceptable option again in England because uh, it was not, as right, you just heard right. from Angelina. And wait, I just want to point out one well, more thing just to bring thing. us up to the timeline of, of the book. Um, so I'm, I'm reading this uh, biography of Tolkien, and of course his family converted to Roman Catholicism, and Tolkien would be a contemporary of the characters in, in this book. So now we're up to the 20th century, mm. and his family was extremely persecuted uh, by their other family members. Like, yes, so his mother no was kidding. a widow. She converts to Roman Catholicism. Her family cuts her off financially over this. So they become destitute. Oh, wow. uh, she dies. Uh, Tolkien becomes an orphan. And Tolkien his whole life said that he believed it was the persecution she experienced that led to her early death. Um, so, oh, wow. so now, I mean, this is also, this would be contemporary with, with these guys. Now these guys are the ultra rich. And as we know, the ultra rich always play by their own rules and have a little bit of a different life than, you know, the ordinary mm -hmm. person, but still, this would be the backdrop. This would not be a great social the move to be really Roman Catholic at this time. Yeah. Right. And one of the things that's, I think, uh, that Charles, even as the narrator explicitly states is that some of these differences are deeper than just uh what does he say a matter of words that there's something here let me see if i can find it well they're talking about he's talking to brideshead about oh, how liking yes. a thing and thinking oh, it is good and, and brideshead asks if there's, a, if there's a difference between those two things yeah so they're talking about they talk about wine and then and then brideshead says but is there a difference between liking a thing and thinking it is and thinking it good bridey don't be so jesuitical said sebastian but then we get this note here from from uh, Charles as the narrator. He says, but I knew that this disagreement was not a matter of words only. 
but expressed a deep and impassable division between us. Mm. Neither had any understanding of the other, nor ever could. And, and then, of course, Bridesmaid says, isn't that just the distinction you made about wine? And they go on about that. And we could talk about that discussion forever. But that, that idea that the mm-hmm. disagreement is not a matter of words only, but expresses a deep and impassable division between us is, I think, a huge part about this relationship, uh, the relationship between the whole Bridesmaid family, the whole Marchman family, and, and Charles. Because for Charles... It's it's deeper than just some kind of logic. It's deeper than some kind of like being able to explain within reason why you believe a thing. And that's where that discussion between Sebastian and Charles from earlier becomes so crucial, where they're talking about Sebastian's talking about why he believes. And I think we should probably talk about that. Oh, that is one of my all-time favorite conversations in a book about faith. Because, you know, sometimes when characters talk about faith, I mean, it just feels like you're reading a religious tract. Mm. You know, it's so preachy or whatever. This was so real. And I have to just say that I loved that this is, this is a total Angelina line, and people who will know me will laugh because this is just exactly how I think about things. But when Charles is expressing disbelief, like, wait a minute, you, you don't actually believe well, this. Well, let's, let, let's, let's read, oh, okay. let's read okay. this whole passage. So uh, for, let's start with, it, we'll read like two pages here. Uh, Tim, why don't you be Charles and Angelina? Why don't you be Sebastian? And I'll read the narrator stuff. Um, but let's start with, we saw a few strangers. So what page are we on? It's 84 for me. Um, so it's in chapter. Yeah, it's like a little break. Yeah, there's a section break. Um, okay. Early-ish in chapter four. And it starts with, we saw a few strangers. Do you see that? Yeah. Are you okay. narrator, David? I'll be narrator. You be Charles. And then Angelina, you be Sebastian. Okay. Angelina, you may also have to play Aloysius. <laughs> Always. Always. <laughs> we saw a few strangers. There was the agent, a lean and pouchy colonel who crossed our path occasionally and once came to tea. Usually we managed to hide from him. On Sundays, a monk was fetched from a neighboring monastery to say mass and breakfast with us. He was the first priest I ever met. I noticed how... Un- which is That's interesting. Mm. That, that speaks to what yeah. you're saying. It's the first time he's ever met a priest. Uh, I noticed how unlike he was to a parson, but Brideshead was a place of such enchantment to me that I expected everything and everyone to be unique. Father Phipps was, in fact, a bland, bland, bun-faced man with an interest in county cricket, which he obstinately believed us to share. You know, Father, Charles and I simply don't know about cricket. I wish I'll read him, uh, Father. I wish I'd seen Tennyson make that 58 last Thursday. That must have been an in innings. The account in the Times was excellent. Did you see him against, South A- against the South Africans? I've never seen him. Neither have I. I haven't seen a first-class match for years, not since Father Grave took me when we were passing through Leeds after, after we'd been to the induction of the Abbot of Ampleforth. Father Graves managed to look up a train which gave us three hours to wait on the afternoon of the match against Lancashire. That was an afternoon. I remember every ball of it. Since then, I've, got, I've had to go by the papers. You seldom go to see, you seldom go to see cricket? Never. I said, and he looked at me with, with the expression I have since seen in the religious, of innocent wonder that those who expose themselves to the dangers of the world should avail themselves so little of its varied solace. <laughs> what a great story. It's Such great. a great line. So great. It keeps getting better. Sebastian always heard his mass, which was ill-attended. Ill Brideshead was not an old established center of Catholicism. Lady Marchman had introduced a few Catholic servants, but the majority of them and all the cottagers prayed, if anywhere, among the flight tombs in the little gray church at the gates. Sebastian's faith was an enigma to me at that time, but not one which I felt particularly concerned to solve. 
I had no religion. I was taken to church weekly as a child, and at school attended chapel daily. But as though in compensation, from, from the time I went to my public school, I was excused church and holidays. The view implicit in my education was that the basic narrative of Christianity had long been exposed as a myth, and that opinion was now divided as to whether its ethical teaching was of present value, a division in which the main weight went against it. Religion was a hobby which some people professed and others did not. At the best, it was slightly ornamental. At the worst, it was the province of complexes and inhibitions, catchwords of the decade, and of the intolerance, hypocrisy, and sheer stupidity attributed to it for centuries. No one ever suggested to me that these quaint observances express a coherent philosophic system and intransigent historical claims, nor had they done so would I have been much interested. I just have to say, that's the modern view. I mean, Wall is right. just nailing what the modern view of Christianity is. And what's interesting, I, as I was reading that, I was just thinking that it's almost what Lewis was thinking until Tolkien yes. convinced him, you know, yeah, it's a myth. So it's just a true myth. This is just, this is something you should appreciate. Yeah. Often, almost daily, since I had known Sebastian, some chance word in his conversation had reminded me that he was a Catholic, but I took it as a foible, like his teddy bear. That's so interesting. We never, mm -hmm. and interestingly, he, that, uh, that teddy bear, Kara later attributes the teddy bear to his youthfulness, right? To his lack of experience, to his need to be, to, to like stay young. And so he, you then get, then that, the teddy bear is also attributed or, you know, uh, attributed to his faith here by Charles. We never discussed the matter until on the second Sunday at Brideshead when Father Phipps had left us and we sat in the colonnade with the papers. He surprised me by saying, Oh dear, it's very difficult being a Catholic. Does it make much difference to you? Of course, all the time. Well, I can't say I've noticed. Are you struggling against temptation? You don't seem much more virtuous than me. I'm very, very much wickeder. Well, then? Who was it who used to pray, Oh, God, make me good, but not yet? I don't know. You, I should think. Why, yes, <laughs> I do, every day, but it isn't that. He turned back to the pages of the News of the World and said, Another naughty scoutmaster. I suppose they try and make you believe an awful lot of nonsense. Is it nonsense? I wish it were. It sometimes sounds terribly sensible to me. But, my dear Sebastian, you can't seriously believe it all. Can't I? I mean, about Christmas and the star and the three kings and the ox and the ass. Oh, yes, I believe that. It's a lovely idea. But you can't believe things because they're a lovely idea. But I do. That's how I believe. And in prayers? You think you can kneel down in front of a statue and say a few words, not even out loud, just in your mind, and change the weather. Or that some saints are more influential than others, and you must get a hold of the right one to help you on the right problem? Oh, yes. Don't you remember last term when I took Aloysius and left him behind I didn't know where? I prayed like mad to St. Anthony of Padua that morning, and immediately after lunch there was Mr. Nichols at Canterbury Gate with Aloysius in his arms saying I'd left him in his cab. Well, if you can believe all that and you don't want to be good, where's the difficulty about your religion? If you can't see it, you can't. Well, where? Oh, don't be a bore, Charles. I want to read about a woman in Hull who's been using an instrument. You started the subject. I was just getting interested. I'll never mention <laughs> it again. Thirty-eight other cases were taken into consideration in sentencing her to six months. Golly. Okay, so... <laughs> 
That's some good stuff right there. Yeah. That's so good. I believe ideas because they're lovely. <laughs> Look, you know, this 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 is one of the things that I'm reading for in this book is like, is this an aesthetic theology? Mm-hmm. And I, I, passages like this make me think that's kind of what what Waugh is doing here. I mean, he's he's showing a vision of Catholicism that is an alternative world. It's not mm-hmm. something that has very much in common whatsoever with the modern world. It's sort of this alternative way of being, and with that way of being comes a, a, um, just an aesthetic sense that someone on the outside just cannot understand. And by aesthetic sense, I don't mean a shallow... Um, any sort of shallow vision of beauty. Yeah, I mean, no, no. a really thick vision right, right. of beauty and what it signifies. Well, and, and it goes, in some senses, you know, I think it goes even beyond just Catholicism, which, of course, this is a book about Catholicism. It's about a conversion to Catholicism. But it is also about a conversion to f- to faith, to faithfulness, to yes. to the yes. church. And so what it's doing is it's is it's it's saying, you know, it's not interested in a version of faith that is just driven entirely by reason, right? Yes. That, yes. that throughout the whole book, we're getting this idea that, that faith is that, that faith and beauty are tied together, that, that faith and religious practice or that beauty and religious practice are tied together in a way that is actually meaningful, that it's not just rote, that our faith can be inspired and enlivened and fulfilled and fed by beauty, by aesthetics. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I think there is such a, a um a attention to detail in all sorts of aesthetic things whether it is architecture or food or otherwise and there and and sebastian's the appeal that things like architecture and literature and theater and food and wine all those things appeal to sebastian in much the same way that his faith does but those things do not fulfill him in the way that that true religion does. And there's like, mm. that's, there's a, that's another part of this, the, you know, these these juxtapositions that are set up throughout. And, and I love that. I love that you say that, that the faith being presented here is more than just reason because if, if which of course is, case, a, is just, a modern idea. Yeah. That would just be more of modernity. Right. I mean, because, because Charles has reasoned that, Oh, well, you know, it's ornamental. It's just a hobby. Mm-hmm. It's a complex, right. you know, there's these, those are all very rationalistic explanations of, of what Christianity is. And so, you know, I never thought of myself as having an aesthetic theology, but the beauty that I perceive in the reality right. that is Christianity is deeply, deeply meaningful to me. And, and it's really beyond words. It's something exactly. that when I see it, I just feel deeply in my bones. Yes, that is why Christianity is true. And that's why shortly, you know, shortly after this conversation about believing in things that are lovely, that's when Charles drops the line that he's beginning to realize that the disagreement is not about words, as you said. It's it's that deep and impassable division between them that they can't understand one another yet. Like Sebastian and Charles, Sebastian and his family can't quite understand why Charles would be agnostic, and he can't understand why they would believe. And the, and the mm-hmm. idea of beauty seems to be. You know the the relationship between beauty and faith seems to be that dividing line between them that you can't express in words. It's something that's experienced. Um, it's 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 deep yes. and impassable. Yeah. And, 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 and it takes. It's... And it's. Let me just say this real quick. Yeah. It seems to me that what we're getting, what's being set up here for us, is 
a story about the way that Charles that 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 he can get beyond words and that the question is going to be can he enter into that deep and impassable yes. division can, can that deep and impassable division be narrowed yes and, and that's what that's what this is significant that he's an artist and sebastian that's, is, is what i was going to say yes, he's encouraging yeah. him to paint and draw and see things uh-huh it's almost like he's setting him up but he i wouldn't consider sebastian either that clever or that wise but what he does recognize in charles is talent he recognizes the a certain set of gifts that other people did not I- inspire him to pursue. And I want to yeah. go back for just a second to that line where, so Charles is following the argument here and says, well, if you can believe all that and you don't want to be good, where's the difficulty about your religion? So he's wanting to engage in this, you know, explain it to me. But Sebastian's yeah. answer is, if you can't see, you can't see. I mean, you know, that's recognizing that there's spiritual blindness. I can't talk you out of that. You just, you, you can't I, I don't see know the reality that I live in. Do you think that this is this is a little bit off topic, but do you think that within the context of this book, what Wa is sort of getting at is that there's a relationship between um, aesthetic vision and the Holy Spirit? Oh wow! Or is that? I mean, maybe it's just something to keep an eye on or think about. But that's what I was thinking about last night, like the idea that that our ability to to see transcendent mm-hmm. value in aesthetics is tied to the work of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And the way that it ties, like, or at least that the relationship between, you know, tra- aesthetic vision and the transcendence that comes with it is tied to our ability to ha- to have faith. I that's believe that that's question. true. I don't know that I've seen it in the book yet, but I want to look for that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's there. I'm just saying that's the question that came up as I was reading this because that I, it really does feel like uh, throughout all these juxtapositions that, that that them standing on opposite ends of a, of a deep and impassable divide related to faith and aesthetics is what's crucial here and that seems like swirling about it all is is potentially the work of the holy spirit mm-hmm. and also that he feels that bride's head is enchanted and i think that that might be connected to mm. the fact that the mm. chapel is there and the sacrament is there which that would actually be the indwelling of christ's presence so he, it would be in a sense in enchan- he's he would be on holy ground mm. and so he so when in the previous, the earlier in the book, when he does it, when he crosses himself with the holy water or whatever, and Sebastian's like, don't do that for me. It may be Charles is, there's something, the enchantedness, he can't help himself because of the enchantedness. Like there's something that tells him he's supposed to, he's supposed to respond physically to it in some way. Yeah. Like there's some kind of beauty or sense of wonder or mystery or enchantedness that he, he, in, in, he feels like there's, he, you're supposed to respond in some way when you get into the holy, into holy ground, right? And that, and that, mm-hmm. well, that puts a different like, do, spin Like, do I take on, my shoes off? What do I do? Yes, yes. And that puts a different spin on Sebastian's comment, right? Don't do it on my account. Do it because you feel it, right? Mm. Yeah, he's like, I, am I not supposed to? You know, you did it. But he's, yeah, he's saying... It's not, don't do it because I did it. Exactly. Do it because you're responding. Like, and, and maybe, maybe, maybe that's what we're getting at. He's slowly, Charles is beginning to see, try to begin to understand or feel yeah. how he's supposed to respond right. to what's There's going on. There's absolutely something about Brideshead, the place, and the family that is, that is stirring up deep longings in Charles that he doesn't even know yeah. how to articulate. Family, yeah. love, belonging, an enchanted universe, beauty faith, all of those things. One thing that I keep thinking about is the idea that it doesn't, it doesn't come across that way to everybody, but like there's something in it for Charles in particular well, it may- because other people can, 
Go ahead. I was just going to... Maybe I'm wrong no, about that. No, I'm agreeing with you. And I think it has to do with the fact that Charles is an artist because, you know, lots of people keep pointing out, well, Charles, you're an artist. You're an artist. You're, artists don't look at the world the same way. Um, and then even, you know... He even brings it to, to life Byron, with his art. Which would bring in a whole romantic notion of <laughs> aesthetics and, and, you know, the poet yeah. and beauty and mm. being able to see things other people can't see. And... Yeah. Well, and it's really interesting that he even, through Seb- Sebastian's prompting, he even kind of brings a part of that place to life. Like his own imagination yes. brings it to life in a way that even Cordelia is like, whoa, that's awesome. Because it was unfinished, yeah. right? Because it's unfinished. Mm. It's not full, mm. which that's true of this family. This is not the fullness of Christianity. It's real. <laughs> it's real faith, yeah. but I mean, it's not the, <laughs> you know what I'm trying yeah. to say. This is yeah. not, this is not the no, ideal no, no, no. Christian. Yeah, I don't want to read a parenting book by the March Mains, but... <laughs> <laughs> we're not reading about an ideal here right right this is was not trying yes. to suggest that this right. is the ideal. this is real messy modern christianity broken and fragmented and striving and make me good but not yet this is this is it yeah and somebody commented last week that we, they thought that maybe we were implying that we didn't think sebastian believed and i don't think we if we said that i don't think that's what we meant to say at all i think we all kind of believe that there is deep within him you know a sense of perhaps fragmented faith but a faith in the last well i don't know that it was very apparent in terms of the story at that point whether it was real but i think it's apparent now that yes that was a real that was a real act of faith Uh, Mm -hmm. he he is a true believer tim go ahead sorry i was gonna ask do you think that we're at this we're at the point in the book where the main question posed to our two main characters are sebastian are you going to stay in um, Charles? Are you going to enter if they're, if they're Sebastian was born on this alternative yes, planet, yes. this beautiful other planet. And it mm-hmm. seems like he's, he wants to be there, but he also wants to leave. And it seems like Charles is born on this completely other planet. And he is starting to become curious about, what what the planet is that Sebastian uh, was born and raised in? So they're kind of they're yeah, kind of going sure. slightly different directions at this point of the novel. Well, well I think that for Sebastian, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think that that conflict between those two characters—the are you in or are you out—is being interestingly played out in the character of Brideshead as he struggles with, "Do I want to be a yeah, priest or not?" I was not? just going to say that. Yep. Well, and also then, you know, again, back to the juxtapositions, because he's stuck in a sense between his mother, Sebastian is, between his mother and his father. His father has left and he's in this exotic place, you know, and then his mother's at home in this place that which that is exotic to Charles. There's there is still this, you know, it's a mysterious, wonderful place to Charles. But he Sebastian doesn't fully see it. He takes he kind of takes it for granted. But he's stuck between the staying with his mother and the going with his father. And even the fact that his so his mother directs Brideshead's education, that's why he gets sent to the Catholic school. But it was his father who <laughs> insisted that he go to Eton, which is you know not mm. Sebastian. Sebastian, yes. So not a not a religious school, right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Is Eton a religious? It's not Roman Catholic, but I don't, is Eton's a Eton's a public school, right? So it it would be would I think it be so, secular yeah. or just? I guess I don't know what like. <laughs> I don't. I don't I, I either. Might be, I might, somebody might correct me and say, "No, Eton is." A, I think Eton was not a religious school. I think it was known as a, a public school. Public school meaning it was not a school associated with a church. 
but they would call it we, in America we would call it a private school but in England they call it a public school meaning it's for anybody not just kids who go to that church so it's not a cathedral school right mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. right right that's a good clarification um well we are over an hour now um let's let's kind of move towards final thoughts here I, I um, want to ask a question of the three yeah. of us, and it, yeah. the answer would be way too long for this episode. But <laughs> I was just thinking, are we attracted? I mean, we're literature readers, right? And we're, we all just – we love reading books. And part of the reason I'll speak for myself that I love reading books is because they are an entrance to another planet. It's an invitation and a brief tour um, – into in a completely different world one that i have never lived in i've never i did not live (laughs) um in england uh the early part of the 20th century but i can kind of feel it and taste it and i wonder if the three of us are attracted to to literature for the reasons that we've been touching on in this book um we believe that our Christian convictions are sort of a total life view and life habit. And all of us have probably been dissatisfied at various points in our life with the notion that Christianity is merely an assent Uh, to a set of propositions. Preach, brother. (laughs) Right? And so, I mean, I know that that is what I grew up kind of understanding faith was assent to a set of propositions and it just felt so hollow oh, yes it was so reductionist it just it was so small yeah. I, I find myself thinking about modernity in that way a lot like my response to a lot of modernity is i think that's so small mm. and i think i think so but i think was giving a picture of just how big it all is right yeah, yeah. there's something bigger, grander. I mean, I love the idea that Charles says, we never talked about Catholicism, and yet it always came up. Sebastian was in a million ways <laughs> yeah. referencing it. You know, because yeah. I, it's part of the mm. air he breathes, right? It's just the way he Absolutely. sees the world. It's not this little compartmentalized Sunday morning habit. It wouldn't come up all the mm-hmm. time if that's what it was. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny because I've, I've, read, I've read or heard people reference this as a book about, like, Catholic guilt. Like that Sebastian's just this guilty Catholic kid. And I think that's so... Wow, I don't see that at all. Such a shallow understanding of it. Yeah, that is a shallow... It strikes that, me as that, shallow. And, um, but really what it's... It does seem to be much more about um, that there is something bigger and grander than, than what the world is offering at the time. And it's there's so many books that are... Uh, you know of the time and I, I think I think a lot about how I taught a, I'll put it this way I taught a class to high school seniors a couple of years ago and it was essentially modern lit and what I was trying to do is show the way we had what was going on after World War One in particular or at least around that time where you have Camus and you have Hemingway and you have mm-hmm. Fitzgerald to a certain extent all these these writers who are responding to this despair and they're basically asking is there anything more here in some mm-hmm. cases they're saying no we're all just you know we're mm-hmm. doomed um and that that malaise as, as you put it tim but then you have these writers who are saying no no they're they're pleading that there is something larger there's something better there's something bigger than than what 
than what seems to be on the surface or what's kind of just bubbling on the surface of the world at the time. You have those writers like, um, like, like Waugh and even to a certain extent Graham Greene and then, and then that leads into O'Connor and that leads into Walker yeah. Percy and so forth. Yeah. And all these writers are responding to that and there's this, not conflict, but there's this, this discussion going on and Waugh is so brilliantly capturing that the world that Hemingway and Camus and Sartre and whoever else are saying is there, he's saying, no, there's more, there's more going on here. There's more, it, it's bigger and more beautiful and more rich. And there's things that we can experience in this world that are, that are more than just, you know, the despair that we're feeling now. Um, and they're trying to open people's eyes to that. And, you know, it, that's why these books are still being read. That's why this conversation is still going on between these works of literature a hundred years later yes. or whatever it is, 80, a hundred years later, something like that. Why do you think this book holds an appeal to secular readers? I mean, you know, it was read in my secular university eagerly and enjoyed and it's spoken well of by people who are not Christians. Is it the same kind of Flannery O'Connor thing where you just appreciate the craft, even if you don't buy what they're selling? It's got to be at least that. I mean, it's gorgeous. Well, it's so sumptuous. Yeah, there's a and there's a you know the, his ability to pen a sentence, you know, to write prose is. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna say unparalleled, but it's not paralleled by paralleled by many people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, and also it's it is of its time, and its time is certainly intriguing true. to a lot of people. Yeah. Very, very true. I have to. And the characters, there's really rich characters. That's another oh, yeah. part of it. I have to say, when the priest sat down and started talking about cricket, I had all these echoes of the enduring chill. You know, like your expectation <laughs> yeah. of your conversation with the That's priest. Great. You know, like I just read like that to me. Charles is having that same. You know, this is the priest. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. This is not how I thought <laughs> this conversation was gonna go. <laughs> That's great. That's a great point. I love that there's comparison. A, there's a section in. Um, Walker Percy's, I think it's The Last Gentleman, where the main character kind of is leaning toward conversion and he wants to meet with a priest. And it's really built up. It's this moment, you know, he's going to meet the priest. And he meets the priest and he's the most, he's got a wandering eye. He's frumpy. <laughs> he's, he's, you know, he's not in, intelligent in any way. And it's it's a really interesting kind of habit that all three of these authors that we've been discussing, they all introduce these priests as sort of um, archetypally grand characters in reality, very diminished characters. Very, they're lacking. They're just part of the point. Every man. Exactly. They're, they're, they're the every man. Yeah. yeah. They're just sort of normal. Nothing special about them. But that's such a, that's such a great point that they're all making this point. In other words, the the, the potency of the faith, the realness of the faith doesn't have anything to do with the messenger. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Whereas, to pick on my own Protestantism a little bit, I mean, that's part of the difficulty that we get in is that charisma becomes the sign or the evidence of the It's almost like a currency. It's a yeah, currency. Yeah. That's a good no, way of saying it. That's absolutely it. true. And it's also a very modern idea, right? Bigger is better. So if you're the guy who's drawing in you know, 10,000 people on a Sunday morning, you must be doing it right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, you know, like I said, we're going on. Yeah. Oh yeah. We got to wrap it. So much good stuff to talk about here. And we don't need, we don't need to get into the finer points of any particular point, you know, group of theology, Protestant or otherwise at the, in the last five minutes of an hour, (laughs) over an hour long. No, no, not at all. 
we're not that's the best way to offend a bunch of people is to talk about talk about finer points of theology and really yeah. broad strokes with like over the course of like 30 yeah. seconds and my 30 so, second final thought and, and boom yeah 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 but no I love my 30 second though. final thought is that I disagree with Protestantism <laughs> I disagree Bye. with Catholicism farewell the Anglican church who needs it <laughs> Uh, but yeah, let's let's let me get some final thoughts from each of you so we can we can wrap up and and uh, and give people something to think about here for the, for the next week. I'm just I'm really curious to see what's going on. Um, it's I, honestly I don't remember how the book ends, and and you've several times referred to this as a conversion story, but it's 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 seeming to me at least now that it's being set up as a as a double story, you know. And I like the way Tim put it: is Sebastian in or out? Um, because. Mm-hmm. I think he's a 19-year-old boy raised in this family, and we all—anybody who's been raised Christian—comes to that crux, right? Where is this my faith or is this my parents' faith? Um, and you, you have yeah. to—you have to yeah. own it as you move forward in adulthood. And so, you know, is Sebastian—is it—is he going to—is it going to be real for him? Um, and and you know, what's going to happen to Charles? But I'm also interested in what's going to happen to Sebastian. Yeah, I love that idea. I'm going to look out for the idea of of it being a coming of age story like a recollection of a one man's coming of age in a sense too you guys mentioned that they're so young and and how do i how do i need to think about the characters given that yes well and and the mistress says that they're in that stage right before manhood and that's one of the things that got me thinking about the fact that they're boys Mm. so they're Mm, they're coming into who they are yeah yeah tim final thought I'm still curious about the idea that this is an aesthetic theology. Yeah, and I'm I, loving and that. I'm, I see more and more evidence that it is, um, but I'm not exactly sure what I even mean when I say an aesthetic theology. Exactly. So maybe that's something that we can pick up at later. I just, I just have kind of a of it. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to jump on board with something yeah. I don't even fully understand. That's classic Angelina because I'm excited about it. <laughs> yeah. The beautiful right. thing about it is that's what great. That's what great works of art do, though, and like in a way that like a systematic theology can't do, right? Yeah, like they yes. can they can create these pictures and these these ideas and these yeah. beautiful. I'm images literally and all that enchanted th- by this idea, and I can't even articulate it. That's what's happening to right. me. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and just sort of like it's happening to Sebastian, and to yes. a certain extent, uh, to Charles as yes, well. Yes. So I guess Maybe that's you the mark of a good book, me right? In a later. Um, in a later podcast, when we kind of have a better sense of the totality of the book, you guys could help me articulate what I mean by an aesthetic theology. Oh, I'm really fascinated. You guys with probably this have idea. a better notion than I do. <laughs> well, I'm confident that we are going to get all kinds of comments on on these things from our I'm readers, just need to go our on listeners. A Facebook right. break. I can't take it. <laughs> so, speaking of which, if you have not joined our Facebook group for, for Close Reads, head over join. to Facebook in the search bar. Yeah, join us. I think we're getting close to a thousand people discussing it now. It's so, crazy. Um, the quality of insights is amazing and i love how everybody starts it off with i'm no literary person and they say something brilliant yeah right right (laughs) exactly so keep skip the prologue about not knowing what you're talking about and just tell us what you're talking about yeah drop drop the faux humility everybody (laughs) stop Um, pretending you are all closet phd literature people because we know better well yeah, join us in the conversation. Uh, of course, if you have not subscribed yet, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe. Click that little subscribe button. Um, join the the Close Reads feed, the, the just the Close Reads feed by itself, or the, the main Cersei Podcast Network feed. We'd appreciate that. And if you have not left a review, or maybe you haven't left a review in a while, we would certainly appreciate that. 
uh, in particular on the close reads feed itself any star reviews or written reviews that you can put there we would really appreciate that um, and of course thank you to Classical Ac- Academic Press and Scully Academy for giving Tim a job and then promoting that job on our, <laughs> on our podcast <laughs> thank you for keeping um, Tim not homeless right <laughs> uh but uh, yeah, thanks to them for sponsoring uh, Close Reads uh, this summer. They're going to be sponsoring all summer long. Oh, so awesome. um, thank, thanks to them. And we love working with Classical Academic Press. So um, thanks to Chris and the whole team over there. And Tim, good luck with those classes as you get those started up. Thank you. All right. Well, for Angelina Stanford and for Tim McIntosh and for Graham, who's in a spaceship somewhere <laughs> off in the void, uh, I am David Kern saying farewell here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening to Close Reads. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.